On this episode of Stuff That Matters, we are joined by Katie Church, the director of Shared Housing at Roof Above. She's an advocate for affordable housing and poverty alleviation, homelessness, food insecurity, and social injustice. Katie walks us through her story and professional journey, Roof Above and Urban Ministries, and what they're doing for the Charlotte community. She discusses the state of the homelessness and housing crisis in America on a broader scale, as well as in the local communities. Katie also talks about the intersection between mental health, substance abuse, and homelessness, and some of the misconceptions when thinking about those instances. Katie gives us some insight into a common scenario that many people face daily, as she explains, rather uniquely, how to treat a basic human situation. She shared with us where her passion for the work that she does comes from, and more. Now here she is, Katie Church. All right, we're so pumped to welcome on Katie Church on Stuff That Matters. Uh, Katie, thank you so much for for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. It's such an honor to be invited. Oh, wow. I don't think anybody's used the word honor yet. That's like, that's yeah, yeah, I don't think so. Your expectations are too high, I think. um, We're we're a few episodes in at this point, so you know what? Maybe (laughs) maybe we're getting getting some. uh, We're getting to the honor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, Katie, thanks so much for your time. uh, And again, for being flexible on the scheduling. So tell us a little bit about, let's just start with your story. Um, You know, you know, in your professional journey up to now, if you can just give us a little bit of summary. Yeah. So um, I believed within my core that I wanted to be a marriage and family therapist. And so I was on that course for a long time, Um, went to college at St. Olaf in Minnesota because they had a family studies major, came back to North Carolina and went to grad school at Pfeiffer University um, to pursue marriage and family therapy. And as I was completing that, that coursework, I was looking for my entry level therapy position, which I discovered was like searching for a unicorn and sort of almost in desperation. I was like, maybe there's a spot for me in the nonprofit world. Maybe I better put out some feelers and see what happens. And I, um, you know, one of the best things that ever happened to me, I connected with this nonprofit organization providing homeless services in the community. And um, since my time connecting with them, I've I've worn a lot of different hats from direct services to philanthropy, community education, program design. Um, right now I'm serving as the director of shared housing at Roof Above. And so the, the nonprofit was Urban Ministries and is Roof Above a, a different organization or a part of that? Can you explain that real quick? Sure. So we actually went through a merger a few years ago. Um, So Roof Above is what emerged from the combination of Men's Shelter of Charlotte and Urban Ministry Center. Um, So yeah, we putting us all together, we have this really robust network of campuses across the community, um, serving 1200 people on any given day across our 10 sites, Um, everything from street outreach to permanent supportive housing. So I, I was telling somebody this morning about this conversation and about how I was excited about it. And also about, I think the topic of homelessness, is, and you can tell me if you disagree, is one of those things that almost nobody really knows about, but everybody has strong opinions about. Like, I think like nobody really knows 
or very few people are actively engaged in the arena of homelessness and housing. And you can even tell me what the proper verbiage is, but a lot of us have, including myself, have kind of strong feelings, strong takes, strong, I feel like everybody thinks they know how to solve it. <laughs> Nobody, but or, or, or everybody, I don't know, it's just such a fascinating topic um, and, and a, kind of a heartbreaking one. And then it, it also certainly, at least from my vantage point, um, seems to be something we're hearing more and more about or seeing more and more about. And we're not always hearing and seeing great things about it. So it's just, I, I'm just super excited and super interested in this conversation. And I promise I will probably say five to 10 things that are just completely uh, like that you just needed to shoot down and and hopefully that'll be edifying to our audience. Um, Cause I, I think I might say some things that, you know, uh, just kind of common folk out there might think, and and some of them probably are, are misconceptions, but um, so for a second, yeah, let's pause, you know, roof above, what do they do for the community? Just to kind of do a deep dive on, on a little bit of history and present day of that organization. Right. Well, um, especially since we are now a merged larger organization, it's really increased our capacity and the scope of our services. Um, I mentioned we have a street outreach team. So that starts all the way at the point of going out into encampments, um, under bridges, going out into the community, connecting with folks who are experiencing unsheltered homelessness. Mm. Um, And then we have three different shelters that we operate Um, for folks experiencing sheltered homelessness. We also have a substance use treatment program um, in in one section of the community. And then we have a day services center. That's really, that location serves as a hub of so many different resources for people who are still experiencing homelessness. And that could be everything from connecting with a counselor to I need to do my laundry, I need to take a shower, I need an address I can put down on job applications, and then I can come check my mail here. So it really covers a broad segment of day-to-day needs that would be easy to take for granted that that are all located in one centralized location. Um, And then, of course, we have multiple housing programs. And housing programs can range anywhere from Rapid rehousing, where the idea is that we're providing a short-term subsidy and supportive services to help people just kind of wrap them around with lots of supports on the front end with the idea that they can self-sustain after. Um, That's one end of the housing spectrum all the way through permanent supportive housing for the individuals who've been identified as our community's most vulnerable individuals who qualify for lifelong supportive services in tandem with subsidized housing. The sort of the permanent, there's a lot there that's super interesting. So the the permanent housing, um, that's more for your, again, pardon my wording, if I'm wrong, like kind of chronic homeless, probably a lot of intersection there with some chronic mental health stuff. Yes. So um, no, that, that phrase is exactly right. So chronically homeless, that's Um, a criteria for qualifying for permanent supportive housing. And so we're looking at individuals who um, are chronically homeless, meaning they've been homeless for at least one year, and they have at least one disabling condition. And that could Mm. be mental health, that could be physical, that could be substance Mm. use. Often we're seeing a combination. And of course, when you look at mental health and substance use, there's some, um, there can be a bit of a vicious cycle in terms of did some of those factors contribute to homelessness? Have some of those factors 
been born out of someone's um, trauma that they've experienced through their time in homelessness. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Chicken and egg. And then obviously it's a compounding factor either way. Um, right. What, I, you know, do you, what are the numbers? like, let's start with maybe Char- like the Charlotte, greater Charlotte community. What are the numbers look like just in terms of scope of scale of homelessness and folks who are housing, you know, not without, without that basic need? Right. Um, across Mecklenburg County, we've identified um, just over 3,000 people who are experiencing homelessness. I think the big um, caveat there is it is a tough number to pin down. I mean, our methods of measurement include intakes that we're receiving from our community-wide coordinated entry, um, where someone identifies as being homeless, they call they go through the the questionnaire, the intake process, and their name is added to our community's coordinated entry list. So this massive list of 3,000 plus individuals who are currently experiencing homelessness. But Mm -hmm. I think part of the picture is also acknowledging how underreported homelessness can be when you have individuals who are couch surfing, um, maybe they're in and out of homelessness, they don't quite get all the way on our radar. And then, of course, the many, many people who are um, housing insecure. So they're in housing, but they are just one breath away. And and they're people who are very likely to next enter our system. Do you think 3,000 represents maybe half of the true number? I know it's impossible to say. I just, what you're, you know, and I'm going to, at some point in the conversation, I want to talk about a current case and kind of situation we're dealing with, which uh, a grandmother of one of the youth that, we're supporting who is in her car most nights. And I don't think that's a person who has, again, raised their hand and identified, like, because they're not really receiving any support. So then that doesn't seem that uncommon. No, it's not. I, I hesitate to hazard a guess at what that breakdown is, but it's, sure. it's definitely underreported. And I think some of that, um, I think, what I do feel more comfortable with is I, I think there's certain subpopulations who are more likely to have that underreport um, barrier. So, for instance, um, some uh, one of the fastest growing homeless populations across the country is youth aging out of foster care, um, which is heartbreaking. And I know there's there's a lot of momentum around that. We're seeing more and more resources to address that need. Um, But I think one of the reasons that's an underreported population is that group is more likely to have friends they can, oh, I'm just going to crash at this friend's house or, you know, that's my mom's friend and she'll let me stay over and shower if I need to. Um, We see a lot of folks who haven't burnt as many bridges yet in that age group just by merit of their their younger age um, and maybe still having connectivity with different family members or friend groups. Um, and then we see some folks who um, are working and experiencing homelessness and they're sleeping in their car. And to your point, because they haven't raised their hand yet, we may not become aware of them. So, and I'm, and tell me if I'm wrong here. This is again, somewhat anecdotal. Charlotte seems to be in a better place than some other large cities as it relates to this issue. And I know that, you you know, you and I, when we spoke years ago, and I'd love for you to get, again, I might be wrong, but like the kind of housing first, wasn't Charlotte somewhat on the cutting edge of some more um, unique ways of of addressing this issue? And then it felt like there was some fruit of that because 
you know, I, I've, I've recently taken some trips out to, I'm from the West Coast originally, kind of the Portland, Seattle area. And probably about a year, maybe a year and a half ago, my brother and I went back up to Portland and to, to hike. And then on the last day, we're like, hey, let's pop out of the city. Let's go to like the famous donut shop. And honestly, it was just absolutely heartbreaking. And and again, I am a, um, I think like, like, again, I'm a therapist. I'm an open-minded, like I'm a heart guy, but man, like something is not working out there. Cause you know, we were literally just stepping over human beings on our way to, a, and that's not the place that, again, now I feel, I, I sound a little bit like the old man on the rocking chair talking about like in my day, but I literally just you know, 15, 10, 15 years ago, you would not have to step over human beings to go to the donut shop and you would not, and that um, something's not working. Like that's not great. Like that just isn't great on any level. So I'm just, how does Charlotte compare to some other large cities? What's the difference if we are doing better? And just, I'd love to like, what's the overall state of, you know, this, this thing that you're, that you're in the fight for, like, what's the state of play? Yeah. So I think looking really big picture, um, the cities that are doing better with numbers of people experiencing homelessness are the cities that have a sufficient supply of affordable housing. That's okay. it. Like that's the magic. Um, that's the very, that's the variable. Like that's the variable. It, um, okay. and I think that idea is starting to catch on and grow mem- grow more momentum. Um, in fact, there's a, there's a great book, um, that I recommend it's, um, literally called homelessness is a housing problem. And so, which it sounds obvious, but it does require that deeper dive to really tease out what that means. And what that means is that you can, um, predict a, a community's degree of homelessness by looking at the inventory of affordable units. And so Mm -hmm. when we look at our local community, we are doing better than many other larger cities because we we haven't reached that same tipping point that many have where the number of people experiencing homelessness is just so, so large and the availability of housing is so, so scarce. But I think what's um, really disconcerting to providers um, in, in that field is looking at where it's headed. You know, if we look at the numbers, homelessness has been on the rise across the country since 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, it slowed down a bit during the early days of the pandemic because there was the eviction moratorium and there were some additional funds coming in for various programs, but that number has gained gained momentum again. And so, um, you know, if we look across the country, the, the cities that are really struggling are the ones that have that greatest disparity um, between cost of housing and, and wages or, um, you know, available affordable housing units. Oh, interesting. So, so again, there's like 50 different angles. So 2017, what 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 are people, what's the analysis on what happened that we started? I, I guess it must have been declining at some point, And then we saw the spike. What was going on there? Yeah. And personally, I'm more familiar with what was happening locally in that timeline. But I can say we did experience that same shift on the local level. And at least in the Charlotte area, 
I know we had seen a decline, particularly in the numbers of individuals experiencing chronic homelessness, because we had engaged in such robust efforts toward providing permanent supportive housing resources. Um, and so with the uptick in permanent supportive housing units, we saw chronically, hum chronically homeless numbers decline. Um, there are more readily available resources for folks who were not chronically homeless because um, it, those services just became more readily available once we had housing available for folks who did qualify for PSH. And so um, we definitely saw the numbers going down. And I think what happened at least locally is our affordable housing crisis really started to take off at that point. Um, some of the great, we always hear these news stories about growth in Charlotte and how many people are moving to the region every day. And we see things torn down and built up. And, um, you know, if we neglect to preserve and build a sufficient inventory of affordable units in the midst of all this growth, there's going to be inevitable consequences in looking at the numbers of people experiencing homelessness. Uh, so ignorant question, affordable, when we say affordable housing, and you kind of keep saying affordable units, you know, just flesh out what that, what that means. That's not exactly your programs. That's actually just apartments that somebody who's kind of on the borderline of the poverty line can actually afford or can, and not, is that, is that what we're really talking about? Just, you know, rent that is not ridiculous, basically? Yes. And so the, the basic thought, um, just across the board is that for a unit to be affordable or for housing to be affordable, you're not spending more than 30% of your income on housing and utilities. Hmm. Um, it's always going to be one of your biggest expenses as an individual or a household. Housing is always going to be up there. But over the decades, that cost has just mounted and wages have not kept pace. And so we're what we're looking at with affordable hmm. units, um, HUD sets different levels each year as far as um, distinguishing, you know, for instance, a lot of the people who we serve at Roof Above are at 30% AMI, area median income or below. And I think for a single adult, that's right under 20,000 annual income, um, which is not going to get you really it's far. It's not going to get you very far. Okay. So right. for instance, if you look at the housing market, I mean, the average cost of a one bedroom unit in Charlotte is right around 1600. Um, now those are not the units that we're targeting in our housing programs, because that's way out of our range. But if we look at kind of the, the lower um, priced units that we can afford, um, we're looking at units that maybe go for a thousand dollars. So if you think about what's going to be affordable for someone, um, you know, they're going to need to make like $36,000 a year to afford that unit without subsidy, without supports. That's not where a lot of our people are. And so yeah. we're looking at that gap. Katie, one yeah. thing I'm curious about the sheer number uh, in terms of the population, how much does that play a role? Uh, like Matt mentioned, uh, you know, out, out in the West coast, uh, me, for example, a couple of years ago, I was in, out in California and in the Los Angeles area, seeing just the sheer number of the homeless population. And obviously, California is very populated, uh, and then you know Houston as well, and another another highly populated city. How much does that play a role? Uh, you you mentioned already, you know the the cost of living in, in some of these cities, but the sheer number of the population does that play a role when it comes to the population, uh, the homeless population? 
I think so. Um, I think cities that have such booms in population, I mean, looking at Charlotte specifically, we've experienced that the last few years. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, what we're seeing is just this really high competition for available units. So folks who do have higher income levels are very competitive in, in what they're able to rent. We also see folks who are intentionally renting below their income level in order to just be frugal and save and invest their money elsewhere. And so that squishes down on the available units that would be considered affordable or more affordable. Um, And then I think because you see, um, when you see the population rising, there's a lot of growth and change. And so in Charlotte, we've seen a lot of things torn down, a lot of new things built up. The new things that are coming in don't have the same affordability as what was lost. And so um, one of the things that pops up in the news here and there is this phrase, NOAA, naturally occurring affordable housing. Um, We are desperately trying to latch on to any existing naturally occurring affordable housing before we lose it. Because typically when something is torn down, what's built up is gonna be a lot more expensive. Um, so yeah, I think some of that growth that happens with just sheer numbers, it becomes more difficult to have the number of available units that's needed. My wife working at New Hope is to provide students with support in the social, emotional, and academic aspect of their life. My why for being here is because these kids need somebody to hear them and see them. My why is I've been in the communities for so long with the residents, now I get the opportunity to work with the families and meet the families. My why is I like to help. I think I was born with that in my nature, so I like helping. I help everyone in the building, as well as our residents and their families. My why is because I want to create a safe environment, a comfortable environment for my students to be able to learn and grow. I put smiles on kids' faces that I love seeing every single day. I am at New Hope because this is a place that inspires change for young kids and for adults. I'm here in New Hope working to make a difference in these young girls and boys' lives, giving them an example of what a role model should be and leading them and guiding them in the right direction. My why for being in New Hope is the residents. I love the kids. It's awesome. My why is seeing the change and the process being made. It's just awesome to see them come in, not want to be here. Then they get here, it's like being a family. What would you say are some of the assumptions that people make about homelessness or the homeless as a population, even obviously it's not like a monolith, but what are some assumptions that just us normal people out there make about this issue or this population that are not correct? I think I'm pleased to say, I think there have been some really damaging assumptions that and maybe I may have a skewed view of this from where I sit, but I feel like some of them are falling by the wayside. Like I I hear fewer and fewer people saying, um, oh, they just need to get a job or, um, you know, oh, they just want to be homeless. Those are some of the things you might hear that's it's not correct and, and kind of damaging when we think about the people who we're serving. Um, I think one of the things that persists, and you mentioned earlier, um, kind of um, substance use, mental health, certainly 
there is a link between those factors and homelessness, but I think there are still some misconceptions around how those play together. Mm-hmm. Um, so for instance, um, you know, it, it's certainly accurate that many people within the homeless population experience mental health symptoms or engage in substance use. Um, <clears throat> but if you think about I I always encourage folks, like, think about everybody, you know, like your whole universe, your friends, your family, your coworkers, friends of friends. I'm sure you could think through and kind of identify a handful of people who experience mental health symptoms, who engage in substance use. Um, If you think through those individuals and you think about, okay, how many of them are experiencing homelessness? Probably not many. Most people would say not many. So why is that? Um, and, and I think that comes back to the, the actual cause of homelessness versus some of what becomes really visible when people are experiencing homelessness. And so um, coming back to this mm. idea that homelessness is a housing problem, you know, if we have, if we don't have enough affordable units, more people are going to experience homelessness. Well, the people who are going to experience homelessness the folks who are engaged in substance use or experiencing mental health symptoms are much more likely to succumb to homelessness when the market is in a place where homeless numbers are naturally going to be on the rise. And so I think that's really visible. Um, And so a lot of times it's easy to make that, you know, connect the dots in such a way where there's the assumption that mental health concerns or substance use is a dominant cause of homelessness. And again, not to say that there isn't a link or that that couldn't be a a really significant factor on an individual basis. But when we look big picture, those aren't the driving forces because we see that in the high rises too. That's not isolated to the homeless population. There's, if you look at the, the high dollar units that we could never possibly afford for our programs, there's mental health symptoms in that building. There's substance use in that building. Um, So I think that's a really important um, link to lift up, just just acknowledging that there is a link, but also identifying what is that link and what is really the underlying cause driving higher numbers of homelessness. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so if I'm hearing you correctly, and let me try to... I mean, so the broadly speaking, the population, there's folks that we all ex- know and personally have mental health struggles, substance abuse struggles. And then that's a big pie, big slices of the pie of the general population. And there's a very small sliver of that pie that also finds themselves without a roof over their head. Um, I think the broad assumption that you're saying is, mo- you know, and again, I think in some ways, maybe that was a healthy shift from where it used to be. Like you said, it sounds like there's a lot less just kind of moralizing of like, Hey man, you're lazy, get, get off your butt and go. There's a lot less that. And then almost shifted to, well, most of these people are probably drug addicts or schizophrenics, which is maybe better than the, you're just the lazy such and such. That's a little bit better because at least it's somewhat trying to contextualize the situation and not just saying that somebody's like a bad person therefore that's why they're or they're morally you know but you're saying that that is also incomplete or actually potentially misleading in terms of like causation correlation type type things is that what you're somewhat getting at is that am i hearing that right absolutely and i, I think part of why 
that perspective can be damaging to the cause is because, you know, if if the need is for a more is for more affordable housing, we need the community to be behind that that call for more units. And if there's this sense of, oh, well, the cause is substance use or mental health symptoms, we may right. be, you know, absolutely there's a need for treatment resources, for right. mental health resources. But don't, don't build that in my back back neighborhood because I'm a little scared of that. Right, that. right. So we we may in, encounter that nimbyism, but also if we build a really strong network of these resources, that by itself is not going to move the needle on the number of people experiencing homelessness because that wasn't the root cause. Whereas, for instance, I think um, I read recently that um, Detroit, Michigan, there's a lot of poverty in that city, but the number of people experiencing homelessness is fairly low. And that's because the the housing that's available is more affordable. And so people who are making the low wages, that's a match. You know, they can they can sustain the housing that's available off of low incomes. Hmm. Um, so I think that's just a great example of, um, you know, what really the root cause is. And then we see all these other factors that are relevant and important to know about and important to be attentive to, but we don't want to miss the most important um, piece that that we need to bolster in our community. And, and so the root cause from your perspective, and again, you said biased perspective, I would say you have an informed perspective. Like I said, I think a lot of us don't have an informed perspective. Um, so your bias is towards actually probably knowing what you're talking about, which is why we're, why we love hearing from you is, but it's, it's economics. It's a math equation, somebody's salary based on their expenses. That's fundamentally what either moves the needle in the wrong direction or moves the needle in the right direction. Right. That and the cost of housing, because we can, right. you know, wages have been, uh, I mean, minimum wage in our state hasn't budged for a long, long time. Um, and housing costs have become increasingly high. And and that's just taken off in such a substantial way that that the chasm between the two has just grown insurmountable. People are falling in that gap where wages don't meet housing costs. And that is a big reason, you know, one of the subpopulations where we've seen growth over the last few years is people experiencing first-time homelessness. And I think that's not surprising when you look at the economics of it. We um, we had an event at our facility a couple uh, weeks ago where we brought in some community members to do kind of like a grill thing. And we usually invite the local police and we, we've gotten friendly with um, some of the local Rock Hill police folks, because again, they they unfortunately um, interact sometimes with our population during our population's worst moment. And so we're trying to reframe some of those relationships and had a conversation with their uh, leader, who's, I think, a phenomenal guy and, and wants to keep this community safe. And he was having he was just talking about how, you know, like what he was going to go do that afternoon, what his team was going to have to do. And he just said lots of interactions and, and dealing with folks who are on the street and. And he was kind of leaning towards that, you know, you know, 95% of the folks that they're interacting with are not necessarily kind of like the single mom who fell on hard times or a medical thing and just needs a bounce back. It's the, it's the same person that they've interacted with 30 times. And, and I think, it, you know, he didn't know what the answer was, but it, that was just his observation of like, that's, that's their vantage point of that 
population. Yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that. I mean, I think you definitely, I think CMPD, their experience is going to be a lot of frequent encounters with familiar faces. And some of that comes back to the visibility piece. Um, you know, mm. we see certain people in certain situations um, who may have other factors in their lives, whether it's mental health concerns, substance use, um, you know, uh, whatever their their background is, criminal record. I mean, different people bring different barriers with them to the table. And some are going to be a lot more visible to the community, particularly to CMPD. Um, called often when when people become visible in ways that make other people feel uncomfortable. Um, mm. But I think it's hard from the outside and it's hard to kind of see that and keep in mind, oh, but the person who just handed me my coffee is also experiencing homelessness mm. and what that looks like. You know, um, my yeah, child's teacher is housing insecure right now. You know, that kind of like folks are everywhere in the world around us, but certain things catch our eye a bit more understandably. And, and I think it's important that we, um, are intentional about keeping that scope more broad when we think about the the cause as a whole. Katie, hmm. are you still seeing impacts on the homeless population uh, from COVID? Uh, and that could be, you know, factors such as, you know, increased layoffs, companies closing their doors. Uh, where are we as a, as a nation also in, in Charlotte as well, specifically uh, post pandemic in terms of the, the homeless population? Yeah, I think um, it's interesting. So two of the housing programs that I support directly launched in February and March of 2020, which yeah. was <laughs> beautiful timing. Great, right. great timing. <laughs> so it was pretty chaotic. Um, oh, wow. One of those programs in particular focuses on individuals whose path out of homelessness is through employment-based income. And so we're really helping them reduce barriers, like how do we help you increase your employment? What's your credit score? How can we get a few points more on that while you're with us in this program? Um, so thinking about that program in particular, we had some shelter guests who were getting ready to move into that program and then decided not to because they were worried about losing their jobs when mm. everything shut down. Um, I think it's safe to say that's really, that piece has stabilized. Um, we haven't, we don't really see a lot of folks in that particular program who are having a hard time finding employment, um, but it may be different from the employment they had a few years ago. They may have had kind of a, a rocky, rough path and now the resume has some gaps and- yeah. Some folks didn't need more barriers <laughs> to help them along. And so um, I think the jobs are out there, I, but I feel like what we're seeing in the workforce um, is less COVID related at this point. Mm -hmm. Really, one, one thing that's gaining more attention from my team right now is that there's a huge literacy barrier um, and that's impeding folks' ability to progress in the workforce. Mm -hmm. um, there's one individual I'm thinking of who has been at the same job for like seven years, makes low wages, really low wages, doesn't want to change jobs because he is a king where he works. He knows everybody's job. He could run the whole place if he needed to, um, but he can't read or write. And it's really, really scary to think about he's going to get stuck 
before he even starts filling in an application somewhere else. And obviously we're there to provide supports and, and rally around him. But, you know, that's just one example. If you think across the community, um, a lot of people, I think, sometimes are getting stuck in certain employment situations where their growth is inhibited because there's a literacy barrier or because there's a transportation barrier, um, you know, or or just an educational barrier, any number of things that um, can get in the way of being able to increase wages that are going to have a fighting chance at keeping pace with rental costs. So there's a couple other, a couple of questions and moving slightly different directions, but I'll ask this one because it's been on my mind. You know, we actually had a conversation recently with um, Sandra Redis, who is an old colleague of mine and really passionate about the Latino community and the intersection of mental health within that community. And I did some work with the Latin American Coalition several years back, and that's where some of my, they were able to educate me on just some of the unique dynamics of that population. And that was really, you know, it's kind of 2016, 2017, 2018, where immigration was you know, it always kind of ebbs and flows in terms of like the public lexicon and how hot that topic is. But um, they really talked about how many unidentified, uh, you know, how much homelessness and couch surfing and family couch surfing and things were were within that population and the fear of raising your hand and getting, you know, you said a list of 3000 people, a lot of uh, immigrants do not want to be put on any kind of formal list of anybody. And so they kind of fly under the radar. I'm curious, what does, you know, what what is roof above? How's the outreach into the Hispanic and Latino community in our area look like? Yeah, I think we're most likely to have outreach um, in those areas through our street outreach team. If someone is unsheltered and experiencing homelessness, we may have contact in that way. But I think you're right. There's there's going to be um, a lot of underreporting with that population. And um, and if you think about the resources we have available to us, a lot of our programs are HUD funded. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to be able to spend federal dollars um, if we don't have the paperwork um, that's that's required. And so we've had situations where people have friends or family members in need of services and and we do what we can to support them but we also recognize we have a lack of resources in terms of housing dollars that could be applied um, in a situation if someone doesn't have documentation that they're a u.s citizen right you know i I think when things get and you know we're we're not a political podcast at all, but like this is an issue, you know. But I think with because I think when things get political, also they get kind of stupid, right? Like just the conversation gets stupid. Nobody can have a nuanced discussion anymore. But um, you know how how does this topic, you know, from what you've seen, get politicized, and how does that kind of pollute the waters, for lack of a better word? Yeah, I think, um, no, you're absolutely right. This is one that gets politicized, especially if you see a city where numbers on the rise, numbers are on the rise, you're going to see some finger pointing <laughs> politically. Yes. yes um, right. And it may have a lot or nothing to do with who's who's being pointed at in those situations. Um, yeah. You know, I think sometimes um, you mentioned that not in my backyard, NIMBYism on a local level, there's a lot of politics behind where do we put resources? 
um, yes, more affordable housing, put it way over there. Yeah, <laughs> That would be the perfect yeah, yeah. spot. Um, <clears throat> so I think I see a lot of, um, not just me, but communities everywhere see a lot of local politics around where does affordable housing go? Yeah. Uh, rezoning is one of the most effective measures we could take to address um, affordable housing needs, but there's a lot of pushback on certain areas that are, you know, single family structures and and not wanting to create more density in those areas. And, um, you know, it's tough if you've got a finite amount of land and a growing number of people who want to be on it. Um, we have to get creative with solutions. And, and that does become a political topic because it has to do with land usage and zoning and where people are going to be. And that, you know, feeds into school systems and, yep. and it's just, the far reaching effects are, are substantial. Yeah. Cause like you said, I don't, you know, I, I think I've got a pretty broad network of folks in my life personally and professionally that have all kinds of different political leanings. And I don't, I, but I don't have a lot of people in my life that are just cold hearted people, right? Like I, I think broadly speaking, most people are like, they, they know they want people to have their basic needs met. I empathize totally with, you know, at what cost to you per, and your own personal discomfort or comfort or like fear of the unknown or your kid. This is again, now I'm, I'm going to meander for a second, but hang with me. Cause I, I'm, Obviously, my, you know, my kind of, like I said, my Portland example, which again, is anecdotal, but even some of my family that's been out there, they just say, it's just visibly getting worse. I think there's some dialogue around that from a, almost like a, you know, like a person centered, like, hey, this person has the right to be homeless, right? This person has the right to sleep on the street if that's what they choose. Like, I've heard that kind of be one of those arguments and it's kind of this like moral ethical philosophical like what's our role what's society's role versus what's just like the individual autonomy of somebody choosing to do that um and then also maybe this like you know a little bit of visibility of that population reminds the world that they exist whereas like charlotte i remember i came from michigan so my you know my reference point for big cities was detroit but mostly actually chicago and I remember when my first, you know, six months in Charlotte walking around and I'd said like, where are all the homeless people? I don't see a single like homeless person just sit, whereas Chicago was pretty, you had to kind of navigate, you had to be pretty savvy. You know, people would just always be asking for money or whatever. It was. it was just visible. There was a visible presence. You could see it and you could feel it. And then Charlotte and my mind was like, where the heck are these people um, obviously in Portland, you don't ever say where the heck are these people? They're out there, but it almost seems to, so I think everything is with good intention, but I think that also, if that's the only image people are seeing, if that's the only video clips people are seeing online, that's got to exacerbate this fear of that population. So then when you say, hey, let's build some affordable housing in South Charlotte, and people say, wait, is it going to be those folks that I'm seeing? Like, that's not going to compel anybody to want to do that, even if we're trying to compel good people who don't want people to suffer. Like, I don't think there's a lot of people in the world who are truly like sociopaths and want people to suffer. But so I don't know. It just feels like some of what's happening out there. I just couldn't, I, I couldn't get over the fact that like, man, this is probably with good intention. Like people want, you know, this is, there's some good at the core of what's happening in Portland, but I don't think it's good. It didn't feel good. It didn't feel like it was moving in the right direction. 
Um, so take me to school on if I'm crazy on that perspective or if you understand what I'm saying. No, I, th- I think you hit on a lot of really salient um, dynamics that are very much at play in our community and other communities. Um, one thing that came to, I hadn't thought about this in forever, but as you were talking, I remembered um, when we were getting ready to build more place, our first single site permanent supportive housing community. Um, they actually, no, it was before, it was the pilot program before that, even the scattered site program. And um, one of the tenants who was going to be moving into that program, living in the in the neighborhood, who had been homeless for years, he was at a grocery store, and there was there was a strong sense of nimbyism in the neighborhood. A lot of fear. Just there were there was fear that crime rates would go up, that this would be a bad thing for the community. And he's in the grocery store, and the lady in front of him was like, "Can you believe they want to move in a lot of homeless people? Isn't that so scary?" And she's, you know, she's concerned. She has concerns for her community, but she's talking with one of her future neighbors who's been homeless for many years, who's getting ready to be one of those people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's it's a heartbreaking situation for him, but I think it also highlights just there is a, a sense of fear that some people carry that can really. Um, I think prevent them from from seeing that bigger picture and and who we're talking about it and what it means for the community to create these resources. Um, so yeah, I think I, I agree. I think most people aren't looking to just not help people or make situations worse. Um, she certainly wasn't looking to insult him. She was looking for some camaraderie there and concerns for the neighborhood. <clears throat> But um, I, I think it does come back to you just to that um, that topic of visibility, <clears throat> just the the strong visibi- visibility that exists in some situations where people are experiencing homelessness versus the person who is right next to you or, you know, working at a restaurant that you're in or right. it's the the population is very broad and diverse and um a certain segment of it just comes to mind um, when we when we talk about the issues. Yes, I think that yeah, like we have a like I, I bet if we asked twenty people to picture a homeless person in your mind, I'm assuming nineteen out of those twenty are going to picture middle aged male pushing a grocery cart. Like there's a kind of like this schema that I just assume nineteen out of twenty people are going to grab onto, right? And they're not necessarily right. going to grab on. And I, and those numbers, you're saying those numbers, that 19 out of 20, that's probably like what, 96%? That probably does not, that does not map onto what you've actually seen from the, the homeless community is much more diverse than what we assume. Right. Absolutely. And I, I think um, when you look at just the sheer need that exists, I mean, by the numbers, I think I want to say it was like 27,000 affordable units that Mecklenburg County is missing to meet the needs. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of households. And if you look more broadly at, you know, Charlotte, Concord, Gastonia, that number rises to 45,000. There are 45,000 missing affordable units. That's going to look a lot broader than you know, 
yeah. that, that stereotypical image that may come to a mind shelter. for the person that makes you feel a little uncomfortable and maybe I'll just walk this way instead. That That's one glimpse. Um, but when you look at folks who are housing insecure or at risk of homelessness or people who are housed, but they're not really able to afford where they are and they're one crisis away from the streets, um, that's a really big pool of people. That's a good that's a really good perspective. I think, again, that that's, you know, and, and I think if I was being honest, I think I'd fall into that 19 out of 20 when somebody asked, even though I've worked with folks who are on all ends of the economic spectrum and they are one paycheck away or had to spend a couple nights at grandma's house before a check clear, you know, but again, if you just ask about homeless, I just have that kind of schema that takes a while to, to break. New hope, our name, our promise. Founded in 1987 by Dr. George Orvin, New Hope has been a beacon of hope and healing for youth across the country for decades and is committed to expanding our impact across the Carolinas and beyond. At our flagship 150-bed treatment facility in Rock Hill, South Carolina, we provide 24-7 residential behavioral health care to male and female youth with significant mental health challenges. Our team of behavioral health care experts deliver comprehensive care in a safe and structured environment. When a youth enters our care, they are often at the lowest point in their life. They've endured years of trauma and rejection. They have accepted a narrative that their life is hopeless, that they are destined to repeat a cycle of despair. That's where we come in. We are here to provide new hope to every youth in our care. New hope through therapy that breaks down walls and builds up their self-worth. New hope through teachers and education tailored to their unique needs. New hope through round-the-clock medical staff ensuring their physical health. New hope through recreation, play, and new experiences that develop life skills. And new hope through the healing power of positive relationships with every one of our team members. We break cycles. We rewrite life stories. It's our name. It's our promise. We are New Hope. I've got two very like straightforward, but maybe dumb questions that I'm just kind of curious, again, just for broad audiences. One, when, what would you recommend to your typical person who drives up to a red light in Charlotte and somebody has a cardboard sign that says, help me, I have three kids and I'm in need, and they come up to your window? What's the, again, assuming that person in that car is a good person, because I assume almost everybody's a good person, but they're conflicted on how do I actually help? How do I maintain my sense of being a good person, but also do this? Because my perspective on that has also changed and how I navigate that. But what would you say as kind of an expert in this space? Yeah, I think that's actually probably the most common question I've heard in all oh, of really? the years in homelessness. Okay. What do I do at the stoplight? <laughs> yeah, interesting. <laughs> um, you know, I think financially, what we always encourage is to support the agencies that have the infrastructure to help the masses, you know, this person is one person in that big pool we were just talking about. And so by financially supporting homeless services agencies, we've 
intentionally built the infrastructure so that we can do outreach to that person and all the other folks you're not seeing. Um, so financially, that that would be our suggestion. I think from a humanistic perspective, um, unless there's a serious reason to have safety concerns, um, making eye contact, being a person with another person, mm. um, you know, you don't have to be ready to pull out $5 to hand over just to give a wave, get a, give a nod, say, how's it going? Um, you know, we always encourage safety. There are absolutely people in the homeless population who um, may be struggling with mental health symptoms. So if, if you are concerned, that may be a factor. It's okay to maintain a little bit of distance and some boundaries there. But I think if it just seems like someone who's out there asking for help, um, just being a kind person with them maybe encouraging them to connect with resources that you're familiar with, like Roof Above and many, many other organizations out there that do great work with housing and food insecurity and um, clothing and just other basic needs that people may need. Um, mm. So I, I think just being a kind presence. I, I've talked with folks who have moved into permanent supportive housing and several of them have said, yeah, I used to fly a sign. And I just remember how much it meant to me when someone made me feel like I wasn't invisible. That's the mm. number one thing I hear from people who formerly held up signs by the road is that they didn't like feeling invisible. Um, mm. Yeah. Oh, and I love the line, just be a person being with another person. That's a pretty good, that's a line. I'm going to quote that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think cool. Well, uh, when I make a, a little preview of this episode, I'll, I'll use that. Yeah, I love that. that, that, love that. That'll, that'll have to be. Because again, I, I think I've probably morphed, you know, transparently what I think I've, done, which I might have to, you know, I think you're challenging me to rethink this a little bit. I've probably morphed into overthinking that, right? So now that I'm in this space and I've worked with adults and kids and families and mental health and a lot of addiction stuff, my, my I, I've, I think that's made me a little bit, you know, cynical-ish, even though that's not my nature, but a little cynical-ish and a little bit of like, oh man, if I give money, is that going to actually help us cycle? And I want to break a cycle. And then now, okay, the light's green. Let me just try it. <laughs> And it's almost like, okay, I missed my opportunity just to be a human being. And I think I may fall into that camp that's like over overthinking it somewhat. Yeah, it's easy to do. I mean, I think everyone has, I, if I'm honest, I'm not 100% comfortable every time I have an encounter like that because my wheels are turning. I'm like, oh, is there a housing program that this person would qualify? Like, I'm, I'm, oh, I'm sure you want to get out of the car. Green and, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. You know, so I, I think it's, uh, understandable dilemma to be in to think what can I do in this moment to um you know make a meaningful connect what is a meaningful connection at this right. moment right in the in the 30 seconds that that, that you have uh, yeah it's it's tough to make a you know decision that you're going to be totally comfortable with right right so my my other really weird question but I I Every time that Charlotte or any big city has a big convention, right? Like, so like elections coming up, we have a big convention. It seems like we are able to clear out the city for like three days. Just what happens there? Like what on a human level, what is happening to our homeless population during those like four or five days where something massive comes and literally just seems like we clear out the city to like this 30 mile radius. Like, do you, I don't, I don't know if you know the answer to that. It just popped in my head. I was like, what the heck is happening there? That's like three, is that thousand people that just get bust to Davidson and told not to come back for four days? I don't understand what's happening there. 
Yeah, I I don't know exactly, but I do know um, there are times in the life of the city where a certain encampment or a certain group of encampments will get a lot of attention because of an event or because of a clearing out or because of a clearing out that's preceding an event. Um, And I think on the provider side, there's sort of the sense of, but there's always an encampment. There's always going to be another encampment. Like, you know, we can move folks around and try to connect them with resources. And we do like, we're out there every day, wherever the encampments are, we're out there talking with folks, um, trying to outreach and engage and build rapport and connect with resources. Um, So I think sometimes certain events cast more light on an encampment or just a certain area in town. Um, And I think that can be helpful because it sheds light on the needs and on the cause. Um, And sometimes there's an outpouring of social support just around thinking about that group of people on that block. Um, Mm -hmm. I think what's sometimes missed is that bigger picture of where are they now? Where are they next? Where's the next place going to pop up because this one's closed down and what can we, you know, so for me, it always raises those bigger systemic picture questions of what can we do to um, create the housing that's needed to support everyone, you know, whether they're in a shelter, in a camp, couch surfing, what do we need to do to create what's needed so that folks aren't in those predicaments? Yeah, I, there's been a couple of times where that hit me as just incredibly callous and and, and also ironic because it's like, let's we're going to have political folks come in to talk about how we make our communities better. But in the meantime, let's pretend that our communities are perfect. So let's clear everybody out. It's just like that. That sucks. That's not that's not great. And again, you know, you you, you interact with these folks. And so I'm sure like just the human toll of that and literally picking up people and moving them kind of like their um, livestock is just pretty pretty crappy to think about. Yeah. And sometimes it's really subtle things too. Like I know there's been a lot of controversy over what kind of benches are installed in different cities. Are we going to put the arm bar in the middle or not? Um, because that arm bar in the middle serves a purpose. <laughs> um, uh, interesting. You know, and it's, I, I saw an article, there was a, just a lot of media focus on some new benches going, I forget what city it was, but they were all going to have the arms in the middle. And some people were like, good. And some people were like, no, that's terrible. And I remember seeing an article, I think it was a town in Canada where they have benches that convert into overnight shelters. Like it's just got like this pull down roof. And so, you know, I think it speaks to, again, to your point, not that people are callous and uncaring and, and wanting ill for one another, but when you look at how to address the needs of the community, you've got folks on one end of the spectrum saying, put a put a bar in the middle of the bench because that's going to help all the way to this bench could be a bed and we should turn it into that. But it feels a little, you know, I think for me, a way oversimplifying it, but it feels like it should be a both and. And I think sometimes we have these either or conversations, right? So like the both and would be let's not have a bench that is like needlessly a torture device for a homeless person. But if we're going to have the really comfortable one, let's also make sure that that person or that community is getting wrapped in supports. Cause we also have to acknowledge that is not somebody's long, that should not be anybody's long-term game plan for their life. We should not be satisfied with that as a society. And I think again, some people think, well, if you're going to do the comfortable benches, that's just us saying we're good with this forever, but it's gotta be, 
it's got to be kind of does that make sense? I and mean, it's got to be a little bit of a both both and situation. And I know I, I think you get more support for it with, hey, let's do this thing that's a comforting measure, but it's a short term measure. That's not what we want from that person. And of course, that's probably not what that person wants for themselves. Like who would want who wants that for themselves? Right. No, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, we are always driving toward housing because, um, you know, we provide these resources that can be temporary relief or comfort or safety, um, tend to basic needs. But at the end of the day, all of that is a vehicle, a mechanism toward connecting with the resource that's most needed, which is always going to be housing. Katie, uh, I want to take it back, uh, if I can, to long before Roof Above Urban Ministries. Um, when did you start to develop an interest in, uh, you know, poverty, homelessness, uh, social injustice? Where did that passion come from? I think I always felt like I wanted my time in the workforce to be work that felt meaningful, like it was having a positive impact in the community. I, even as a kid, I was like, gosh, I'm going to spend a lot of hours of my life working. I better really like what I do because that would be terrible if I didn't. (laughs) It's a lot of time investment. Um, But as far as homeless services specifically, I stumbled across that during my time in grad school. I was serving as an intern um, at an adult rehabilitation center uh, that that utilizes an abstinence-only model. Um, and I realized pretty quickly during my time there that a lot of the people um, I was working with had entered treatment directly from unsheltered homelessness. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Okay. And I, you know, I think I was in that mindset of, oh, well, probably substance use led to homelessness and now they're here and they're receiving treatment and okay, good. Um, But I also really quickly recognized that while some people were saying this resource is the right one for me, this is great. I need the structure. I need to have this pressure that if I mess up, I'm like, I've got to start all over again. Mm. Some people really thrived in that setting, but then I saw a whole nother group who they were terrified because they're facing the biggest struggle of their life, battling the disease of addiction, and they have to be perfect at it or they're going to be homeless tomorrow. And I was like, we are missing something here. This can't be, this, this clearly is not a one size fits all approach to substance use, but I don't, I don't know what the answer is. And then um, when I, again, somewhat in desperation, tiptoed into the nonprofit world, like maybe I'll just do this for a little bit until Mm -hmm. I can find a job as a marriage and family therapist. Mm -hmm. Um, When I started reading the job description for the the role that I ultimately stepped into, I kept seeing this phrase housing first, capital H, capital F, housing first, Mm -hmm. never heard of it. I was like, what is this? So I was like, I better research it before my interview. And I started reading. And it was like this light bulb moment. I just recognizing these principles of, you know, housing is a basic human right. Everyone deserves housing. Housing should not be contingent on taking medication somebody doesn't want to take or um, completely abstaining from substances if that's not where they are. Like we shouldn't hold housing over people's heads like a reward when when they've done well enough with the other areas of their life. Um, and when I started thinking about the implications, what that could look like for people in general, but also thinking about some of the guys I'd lost from, from that treatment setting, people who just one day they're not there in group therapy the next yeah. day and know what happened. 
um, I started thinking about what that model could have looked like for them. And um, and that just really resonated with me. And ever since, I've, I've just been a, a big advocate for that approach of starting with the housing and then honoring everyone's choice. If they if they are concerned about substance use, great. Let's let's work on that. We can support you with that. We can connect you with resources. If that's not where you are, that's okay. It's always available. We're glad to help you with it. But let's make sure we can sustain housing. Um, so that that really was the um I, I really just stumbled across it. But once I learned the model underpinning the work, I um it was just a really a good fit and something I feel passionate about. That's awesome. Well, I can say I'm glad that our local community has you, Katie, as a as a champion and as an advocate. Um, where where do you think we're going five to ten years from now? You know, on the positive, like what's what's the good news in homeless services and you know our ability to rally around this community and make things better? Where do you see us going? Well, I have to hope that. Um, we're going to be headed in the direction of adding more and more affordable units uh, because that's absolutely the need. I mm. do think um, we've done a better and better job of coordinating efforts across the community. We have a continuum of care as a community. We have that by name list I mentioned, the coordinated entry where you know, when someone's registered as experiencing homelessness in our community, that name's not just going out to this entity or that entity. We're all coming to the table to say, okay, who's next on the list? Ooh, we have an opening. We have an opening. And so it's allowed us to more efficiently move folks forward into housing that does exist already. Um, I think also, um, you know, I'm really excited about the programs that we've piloted, um, that I'm honored to be a part of the shared housing program because shared housing is a really good vehicle for taking advantage of the resources that do exist already. Um, you know, we talked about density within the city. And if you've got two bedroom units and you've got two people who need housing and subsidy, if there are opportunities for nonprofits to provide subsidy within housing that's a shared context, um, people can afford more housing for less money when they're pooling resources. And, and what I love about that, it's not just an effective homeless services intervention, that's just across the board. You see that in large cities. It's not uncommon for folks to need to have roommates. That's not some shameful place to be in life. Like that's just um, kind of a norm in a lot of bigger cities. So I think our city has to continue leaning into that approach as being a perfectly acceptable and good option for homeless services and in general, just to meet the needs of our growing city. So in closing, uh, this being stuff that matters, I'm not going to take the name of the show and turn it into the final question for you. What is the stuff that matters? The stuff that matters is being attentive to our community's needs. And right now we know that there are people who don't have what they need. There are people who don't have a home. And we know that we don't have enough of the right kind of housing yet to meet that need. So to me, the stuff that matters is leaning into the needs that we know exist, continuing to pool our efforts, our resources, band together to focus our energy, our financial resources, everything that we have toward supporting growth 
across our community. Our community is seeing so much growth and it's a wonderful thing in many ways. And we have to walk alongside the growth that's already happening to grow our affordable housing availability so that everyone can be a part of this um, really booming, growing city that's changing so much. We can change with it. We can have homeless services that grow and change along with the other growth that's happening. And that's what we absolutely must do in order to address the needs of the homeless population. Hmm. And like you said, everybody can be a part of it. If we do it right, yep. everybody can be a part of it. Absolutely. Um, Katie, if, if folks you know heard you today and, and get pumped up about this as something they want to lean into more, how can they do that? How can they find more about Roof Above? Just give a little couple of plugs of where people could plug into. Yes. So we are always looking for people to get involved with our work at Roof Above. Our website's a great resource, roofabove.org. Um, we have so many volunteer needs, everything from beautification of units that we're renting to serving mm. in our soup kitchen, serving lunch at our shelter. Um, you know, we have a lot of volunteer opportunities. We always welcome financial contributions that help fund the services that we're offering and um, support the work that we're doing in the community. And we also have a really great and growing education program that I highly recommend where you can get connected as an individual or with a group and just say, hey, I'd like to learn more. Can we, like, what classes do you have available? We've got um, a colleague of mine is so enthusiastic about this, such a great champion, and can really have those sit down, deep dive conversations um, to learn even more about um, the needs of the community and the work that's happening and how folks can get involved. Awesome. Well, Katie, thank you so much for your time. Again, your expertise, what you're doing for the community, everybody at Roof Above. Um, just such a fascinating, important conversation. So thanks for taking some time out. Uh, we'd love to have you back sometime. Just yep. keep talking through this and um, ways that New Hope and just other folks in our community who um, care can keep leaning in. So just want to say thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much. Uh, you can listen to this episode and all episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or you can watch episodes on YouTube. And if you're interested in being a part of the New Hope mission, please visit newhopetreatment.com for more information. Again, that's newhopetreatment.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.